for our questions are for small group time, that's always on the back goofy table. Same with Bibles. I need, I'm not centered, so I'm going to do that now so I get stressed out. But welcome to Thursday nights. I'm so glad you all made it. I'm so glad you all are here. Um, again, if you have absolutely no idea what sermon series we're in, if you could at least take a guess, who knows what book of the Bible we're in? Romans. Yes, love it. Romans. Who knows what chapter we're in? Yes, did I hear one? No, we did four last week. Oh, man. All right, we're almost fully there. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 5. But there is something, as I was preparing for this, it it just laid on my heart again, because now the fun part is, is um, as of recent, we were doing Romans each chapter through middle school all the way through high school each week. So we're if you're in chapter one, we do it for middle school, high school, young adults that whole week. Um, but thanks, thanks to the hurricane that uh, luckily missed us, unfortunately hit some other people, so we do pray for them, um, and, and we've seen the disaster. But now we're like back a week, and so I got to re-preach um, that message of chapter four to our high schoolers and middle schoolers last night, and this one verse just sticks so well, and, and it's this reality, and I just... I think it opens up well for what chapter 5 talks about. And so I just want to not, not take too much time chatter-chattering, but just j- diving right into this part. Um, and it said this. It says in verse 20 of chapter 4, No unbelief made him waver, talking about Abraham, concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. And kind of a funny thing is, is I posted one of the clips of, of that notion, and one of the examples I used about that unbelief, that doubt, that questioning, is a, a parent dying. And so I said, you know, one of my examples was, is like, my dad died, and, and, and I don't know why that happened or why that took place. And um, funny enough, and this speaks to this guy's heart, if you guys know who I'm talking about, but Pastor Joe, um, being the just sincere heart that he has, he's our old middle school pastor, he reached out to me and was like, hey, dude, just want to let you know, like, I'm praying for you, praying for your family, hope all is well, um, let me know if you need anything. And so I text him back, I'm like, dude, super solid, thank you, love it, um, what brought this on? And he just texts back and goes, well, like, I heard your dad died. And I was like, oh, no. So I'm like, sorry, so that's why I redid the post and I put disclaimer, this is an example because, in fact, I didn't want anyone... Mind you, no clue where my dad currently is. So if you know my testimony, my dad left when I was super young. So he might be, he might not be. Don't know. It's okay. The Lord knows. But what I thought about and what really kind of stuck to me again from chapter 4 is this reality of we, we've done such a disservice in the church of when we doubt, of when we question. We've, we've always taken believers who sit there and say, is it okay that I'm, I'm not fully like, sure about this one thing? Is it okay that I question, hey, why don't I fully comprehend this idea or this season of my life? And what a lot of people do is you just say what? We say, hey, just have more faith. Just have more faith. And when we tell people to just have more faith, what are we telling them? Well, see, truly, your connectivity to God and your, and your relationship with God and, and your salvation really is wrapped up in and how big your faith is. Right? We've done this disservice where we, where we tell people, you just need to have a bigger faith. When in reality, we just need to remind ourselves of who we've placed our faith in. A really big God. In the one true God. 
and the God that the Bible teaches us, and the God that gave Abraham the ability to say that when everything was falling apart around him, when, when he was promised a child, he was well in his 100-year-old era, and his wife was barren, yet he said, look, I'm doubting, but I'm going to choose to give God the glory. So when we get that cancer diagnosis, when that relative dies, when all these horrible, dark things happen, Instead of running from God, we can give him glory knowing that he's in control. And that can give us peace. We've talked about it quite a bit in here, but let me just ask you guys this. Uh, uh, let's, what are some denominations that we know of in the church? Just, what, what are some denominations that are out there? Yes, ma'am. Non-denominational. Non-denominational. They're, they're, they're Baptocostal. They just don't want to call themselves Baptist. Yes, Talk about that later. Yes. Methodist. Methodist. Okay. What's another denomination? We'll talk about that later. Pentecostal, Lutheran. Huh? Presbyterian. Episcopal. Vegetarian. Yes. Anglican. We're getting into high church now. All right. Anyone says, you know, vegan, then we, that's a little bit cultish. I don't know, but no, I'm just... <laughs> Here's the deal. Why do we have, let's bring it back in. Why do, why do we have all these different denominations, right? That's always a question, especially for new believers, especially for young adults, right? When you start not having to go to the same church that your parents go to because they're your ride and they're kind of forcing you because you live in their house and you're going like, where do I even end up, right? We go through that whole, it was like maybe 2016 where all the Baptist churches who wanted to stop losing their congregations were like, we'll just call ourselves community. So we're Indian Rocks Community Church. No, we didn't ever do that. We stayed Indian Rocks Baptist, but they want to take like Baptist out of the name, right? Because Baptist, that's a, that's a bad label, right? And then that birthed the era of non-denominational and wearing, you know, shorts. I don't know. But we have all these different denominations. Why? Because at a certain point, a group of people said, huh, we're starting to teach things or maybe believe things or do things a certain way that maybe this other group doesn't like. And hey, we agree on the gospel message, but like we kind of want to worship a little bit different, so we're going to go over here. But then we do get to the point, and some of us said this, we do get to the point where our gospel messages don't line up. And it's no longer a denominational split. It's no longer just a like, ah, uh, they like to you know, run down the aisles in a praise and worship train, we kind of like to do like the, the Baptist flat, right? We're probably not going to worship together on a Sunday morning because it's distracting, but like we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Whereas this person says, hey, unless you're baptized in water and by the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues, then you're saved? No, that, now we're given a whole different gospel message. When you start saying it's by faith and works. It's, it's when you start saying that we need to pray to all these dead saints before we can get enough grace to go to, to go to Jesus. We've changed the gospel. And unfortunately, what's happening, because we as humans are broken, sinful people trying to come together and worship the Lord, is we do get denominational splits, which is unfortunate, right, that we can't be in agreement on all things. But then we also do get false religions that take the gospel message that has eternally changed most of our lives and we spin it to make ourselves feel better, and then we create whole new religions. Because for some people in the 1500s and, and a little bit before, 
it felt better knowing that, yeah, we could trust Jesus, but like we also can pay towards a better salvation. We can, we can actually work to make sure we are saved. That sounds like stuff that we can do, and that makes me feel better because then I know I can, I'm doing something about it. See, we've, we've twisted and changed the gospel message at that point. Right? What, what would set us apart to be a better Christian if only we could, you know, start running around, rolling on the floor and, and yelling out in weird tongues? Right? Because now we have the fruit of the Holy Spirit. We are set apart. Right? We have the true gospel power. We almost become elitist in our thinking now. And we've changed the gospel. And so last week in Romans 4, we covered it's by grace through faith, right? Because even the, the Hebrew people, the Israelites, right, they had circumcision as a sign that ethnically and spiritually set apart God's people. And that's where we kind of had to be careful of how we related baptism and circumcision because circumcision did have an ethnical backing to it just as a group of people but also it said it was those who had faith in God's promise with the proof of the seal, right? It, it showed that they had placed their faith. They had done something that wasn't a work. They, did, they placed their faith in a promise they knew would be completed outside of themselves. And I think I asked this question the last time, but if, if you get baptized, does that make you saved? Right? See, because what makes someone saved is the inward change, right? It's the inward change. Baptism is just that, hey, this person is now proclaiming to all of you that they want to be buried in the likeness of his death and raised now to walk in newness of life, being washed of their sins, what they've done eternally. They're now showing to you externally. Why? Because they want accountability with you. They want to show you that they stand with King Jesus. See, actually, baptism is one of the biggest political statements you could ever make. He's back when they were baptizing disciples during the Roman era and the Roman Empire. In the Roman Empire, their god was their emperor. Imperial worship. That's why they have temples to the emperors. That's why emperors, it's almost like North Korea at this point where they have the picture of whatever the guy's name is at this point. I can't remember. King Jamun. It might be. I don't know. But I was listening to this girl. She escaped from North Korea, and she was sharing that they could randomly come into your house, and if they went like this to the picture frame and they found dust, they'd execute you. That's the level of imperial governmental worship that was going on even in Rome. And so what happened when you claimed Jesus as Lord and Savior, as the king of your heart, and then publicly displayed that? You're clearly stating you stand against this world. You stand against the governmental authorities of the powers and principalities of the air. You stand against all these things that are not Jesus. That was the weight. You're taking, the kings had signet rings, right? Had their initials usually or their, their empire's emblem. And that's how we knew we got an official letter. They would put the wax and they would put the seal and you'd see the picture. And so for God's people, that's what circumcision, what, weird enough, I get it, I already see some of the giggles. Circumcision was that outwardly sign of that inward change, right? It was, again, very loosely because there was ethnic tie to it. But so when we get baptized, 
we're making that statement. We're saying this is no longer I can just live kind of individualistically with my pet sins, kind of doing whatever I want. I'm now claiming that I, to everyone who's witnessing my baptism that I'm a believer and that Jesus sits on my heart, that he is the king that I serve. See, I, I, I want us to, as, as Abraham was spoken of in the last chapter too, it said he was fully convinced. He was fully convinced of the gospel message that he believed. How many of us can say that we're fully convinced of the gospel message? How many of us can say that we're at least convinced enough that it saved my life? I'm not asking you to be theologians and, you know, sitting in the leather chairs with the cigars discussing predestination. Though most of that sounds great, I'm just asking, do you know that you're a sinner in need of a Savior and Jesus did it? Because if that's the case, you're fully, you, if you claim Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you've been fully convinced that there is by no other way that you can be saved, or else you wouldn't have trusted it. Abraham trusted the promise of God. He didn't know how it was going to happen, hence why it said when unbelief hit, he didn't understand, so he gave glory to God who understood. He was fully convinced of God. Wayne Grudem is an amazing professor, pastor, theologian, and, and he says this about faith alone that I think really presses into what we're about to learn tonight. And it says, Luther and all the other Protestants who followed him insisted that justification was by faith alone. While the Roman Catholics' response that justification was by faith plus the use, the use of the means of grace found in the sacraments of the church, such as baptism, confirmation, the Eucharist of the Lord's Supper, which means they actually believed in transubstantiation, which means every time you ate that stale cracker, it actually became Jesus. Every time you drank for us as Baptists the grape juice, it actually became the blood of Christ, right? They believed it actually turned into Jesus, a.k.a. they were re-crucifying him every time they took communion. And as penance, penance, what does that mean, penance? Uh, as the fact that they were paying for forgiveness. They were paying for the forgiveness of others, giving confession in weird boxes to guys they don't even see, thinking that that's the ear of the Lord. See, it's by faith alone. And that's why the first three chapters of Romans is so clear that the pagan, unknowledged, un, like just weird guys who have no religious background, they're sinners. The hyper-religious, the Hebrews, right? The ones who they held the whole law. They had the boxes wrapped on. They did the Shema prayer. They were at the temple when it was Sabbath. They only walked in 99 feet, not the 100. Like they were there. Even they're sinners if they don't have Jesus. And then chapter 3 comes around and says, just in case I didn't make the message clear enough, Mitch, Grady, Colin, Kenzie, each one of you is responsible for the reality of your sinfulness. But grace be to God that Christ paid it all. So that by your faith in him alone, you shall be saved. 
Not by if you're circumcised or not. Not if you get dunked. Not if you have church membership. Not if you tithe. Not if you are doing the Lord's Supper. Not if you believe it's actually his body or blood. Not any of those things save you. What saves you is having faith in the completed work of King Jesus. That promise of God. See, tonight we need to see the gospel in this way because the work of Christ is what saves us. And so we claim a few great truths that the world would rather ignore. See, I think the first three a lot of us love, right? The first three, God, and we say this all the time, but if we actually dove in, some of us, you would argue with me, right? How many of us would agree, is God all-powerful? Yes. Right? Yeah. Uh, what about all-knowing? Is God all-knowing? Or is God kind of up there going, oh, okay. Man, Paul needs a haircut, but it's fine. We'll get there. Trim the beard a little bit, you know, just... Is God all present? See, at a, at a foundational level, we all would agree on those three things. I think most of us would agree that salvation is the completed work in Christ, right? Salvation was not finished by anybody but who? Jesus, right? What did he say on the cross? It is finished. He didn't wait for Gabe to come running up and go, oh, hold on, wait, I've got to put some of my blood in the pile. Got to pay for mine a little bit. No, he spilled his blood and said, it is finished. He didn't wait for the martyr of the saints. He didn't wait for his mother to be like, okay, Jesus, now you're allowed to, since I'm the queen of the universe. No. When the whole crowd was around Jesus and around Jesus' mom, and they're like, oh, blessed is she. She is the mother to the Messiah. How great is she? What was her response? She didn't have one. You don't know why? Because Jesus walked up and said, yeah, it's a pretty neat responsibility she had, but even she's a sinner. Blessed is the one who can forgive sins, who is Christ Jesus. That is the truth. How many of us would agree that suffering's beneficial? There's a few of us. We've probably been through some things, right? But there are times in our life when, we, when suffering hits and we're like, dude, this sucks. Like, I, this unbelief is hitting right now, and I have no idea what's happening. Right? And that's okay. We talked about that last week. I don't know why the printer stapled this, but we're going to walk through it carefully. So let's, let's go to chapter 5. Now that we've kind of recapped 1 through 4, let's, let's dive into 5. And it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. See, we always love feeling the peace from God, right? How many of us love when we get peace from God? We pray, we're like, Lord, give us that peace because I don't know what's happening, but I need the peace. See, the world loves it too, right? World peace. Let's just stop wars. 
Stop drilling off the coast. We're killing the seaweed. Right? Whatever. We, we, we just want peace. We love peace from God. And even unsaved people will go, yeah, well, I mean, we said in our prayers to God for peace and world hunger. But I love the way this is worded. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. See, we all want peace from God. We forget that we should probably be at peace first with God. He is a righteous and holy and sovereign, almighty, all-knowing, ever-present God who hates sin is not at peace with someone who is unreconciled. We covered this last year in our Sunday school series, or, yeah, Sunday schools, and in James, actually, when James talks about prayer. But I genuinely think there is, there is one prayer, right? Because Scripture over and over in Psalms and in Proverbs talks about how God turns his ears away from the wicked and leans into the righteous. So if he's turning his ears away from the wicked... Man, what a sweeter, most beautiful prayer for an unsaved person to pray. Not for positive vibes to go over to Ukraine. Because I don't know what God they're trying to get positive vibes from. He's like, clearly they don't even like the one true God yet. It's the prayer of repentance. All who come to me, I shall not turn away. We first need to be at peace with God before we'll ever understand the peace from God. And that's why he's saying it's so important for you to understand the depravity, the total depravity of who we are outside of the love of Christ. We are sinners. Ephesians 2, you were dead in your sin. You're not limping along. You're not kind of skipping along in your sin. You're dead. I don't know if you've witnessed death. They ain't doing much. They're dead. And yet, thanks be to the completed work of Christ that we can be saved. See, to understand peace from God is to understand that we were once not at peace with God. And we need to understand this. See, this leads us to a way better view of what grace is. How many of you guys, when you hear the gospel message, tune out? If you're just being honest, I'll be honest. When I was first saved and, I heard, and, and people started, we'd go to like the evangelism like nights or whatever, and, and the preacher's giving the altar call, and you're like, I got this already. Like, I'm saved. Like, I hope this kid right here weeping and, and crying gets saved, but like, I got it. Like, you almost, sometimes you can become numb to the gospel message as a believer as the further we walk along. We become numb to the gospel message. We become numb to the foundation of what grace is. Is that in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we both are made justified and we are made at peace. He then bestows grace on us. See, grace of salvation isn't just this one and done type thing. It's not that we just hear the gospel, we surrender to it, and then we just keep walking on away from it. We're like, ah, that's the milk stuff. I want the, I want the steak, right? Give me that election. Give me that predestination. Give me God's sovereignty. I want to talk about those things. 
See, but it says clearly, the faith into this grace in which we stand. It doesn't say in which you have stood. It doesn't say in which you once felt alive. It says in which we stand. Stand in that grace. See, we now presently are being conformed into the image of God. By what? By grace. Because if we were still getting condemned for our sin, if he still hated us, if we were still unreconciled to God because of every sinful act that we had, we're all dead. We're all dead. We all suck. We all can't do it. But in his grace that we now stand, he doesn't murder us as soon as we lie. He doesn't punish us as soon as we have a bad thought. We get conviction. How many of you guys have ever looked at conviction as grace? What a crazy, and it took me for so long to figure this out, that one of the biggest means of grace, isn't that list that we read in the quote earlier, one of the biggest means of grace is conviction of the Holy Spirit in my life. Hey, maybe you shouldn't be living together if you're not married. Hey, maybe you shouldn't be having sex if you're just dating. Right? Maybe you shouldn't be lying to your best friend. Maybe you shouldn't be talking behind that person's back. Right? We now have conviction, but what do we always do? Oh, they're condemning me. We get the words mixed up. We take the Holy Spirit's conviction, we slap it with condemnation, and then we run away and go hide in our sin. instead of pressing into what the conviction is, which is grace, saving you from something way darker and deeper. That when you go to make the same mistake again, he's going, mm, hey, <laughs> you tried that last week and it left you feeling empty. Just saying. It's like what scripture says, what, uh, like dogs return to their vomit. Right? Or if you have those weird dogs, and I was a vet tech for 11 years, and they like eat their own poop. <laughs> I live that every day. They really do. It's gross. Pineapple. Anyways, because they're dogs. I don't know. They like their vomit and poop. It's what the Bible says we are as sinners. Anyways, verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. How many of you guys can say you rejoice in your suffering every time it hits? Yeah, that's what I thought. I know. I won't even raise my hand for that one. Right, but it says we now rejoice in suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. How many of us have felt shame? I think we've all felt shame. And we're not going to shame you. You're allowed to raise your hand. It's okay. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I think there's nothing more beautiful. Now that as I keep walking through Scripture and walking through the gospel message, I keep coming back to this one point. What's the biggest reality of sin in our life? It causes us to what? Suffer. Sin causes suffering. 
Though the joy might be there for a moment, yet it is fading. Yeah, while you're having sex with your boyfriend or girlfriend, it's probably, hopefully, at least decent in the time. But afterwards, the reality is going to hit. And you're going to go, man, I know the God I serve, and, and he has a way higher standard for what just took place. Some of our parents probably have, you've experienced this through your parents, but my, you know, hey, guess what, son, guess what, daughter? Daddy's not too happy anymore in the marriage, and so, you know, he's, he's gonna, we're gonna get divorced, and it's not your fault, and we all think it is anyways. Um, but yeah, he's just, he's just not happy. He got bored. And one day he's gonna wake up and go, man, I had the wrong view of what marriage was. I didn't see what scripture had. I thought me being bored was a good enough reason to leave. And we do that in relationships. Instead of just breaking up, which is sometimes I wish I just had a sign for some of y'all, like just dump them. There's no legal holding to it. You can leave. There's no oath that's been taken place. So instead of cheating on each other, instead of causing more damage that's unnecessary, just walk out. See, suffering is given a new vision and a new light the moment we surrender to the gospel. We now can see that even if we do not understand, just like Abraham, we can give God the glory when there's a bad diagnosis or a family trauma happens or the loss of a loved one takes place. We now don't have to have the answers. We now don't have to worry constantly going, how do I fix this? We can turn to the one who is able. We can give him Glory, because we know the grace. We know the truth of it because we've experienced the gospel. I love that it's suffering produces endurance. Endurance, character, and character, hope. How, many, how, how often is it when we walk through life and we're hoping for something, it, it usually partners with something else. It usually partners with we long for it. Right? In, a, in an earthly, very practical sense, hope is always connected to a longing. I hope I pass. Why? Because I'm longing to get out of the school. Right? I hope we get married because I'm longing for some good things on the other side. Right? Hope and longing always come together. But the hope that's given to us in the gospel isn't one that we have to long for. Why? Because it's being built. Our hope isn't earthly hope. Our, our hope is founded on a solidified truth and the more we press into that truth, the more our hope gets built. I don't have to long that hopefully one day I was a good enough person that God will let me through the gates. 
I don't have to long that hopefully one day when my eyes close and I get put six feet under that I'll be actually not just having random thoughts and complete darkness, but that I'll be staring face to face with King Jesus. I don't have to long for these things because their truth has already been given to you and I. They've already been completed. They've already been guaranteed. It's already been bought. We have a hope that is built, not just longed for. But here's another misconception that we have in the gospel. Right? The gospel, the gospel is to save us from hell. Right? That's why I don't want to burn. The dude on the soapbox on Almerton made it very clear that if I don't turn, I'm going to burn. Right? That's the only reason they get those words out because it's all that fits on the cardboard sign with a Sharpie. Turn or burn. Yeah, how many of you guys have ever done cardboard uh, testimonials? I love them. We do them at camp and stuff, right? Like one, on one side, it's who you used to be. On the other side, it's who you now are in Christ. And they're beautiful. They're meaningful. CR did it one on a Sunday morning with us one time. But I feel like for them, it's just like it's their, it's their follow-up message, right? It's like, turn or burn. You all suck, right? Like it's their cardboard testimonial. But suffering can be purposeful when we realize that God doesn't just make us right. He doesn't just save us from hell. Yes, he does both those things, but he actually pours his eternal love into our hearts. He's not just saving us from stuff and then setting us aside like trophies won by the blood of Jesus. He's pouring out his love onto us saying, you're now restored to a relationship with me. You're not meant to just gather dust over there living a pointless life. You have purpose. You have meaning. You have value, worth, and reason. So I poured my blood out on the cross so that it can save you and resurrect you from the dead so that it can give you eternal life. He poured his love out for us. Verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare to even die. Verse 8, But God showed us his love. For while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Do we see the language that Paul's using of those who don't have a right relationship with Jesus? Do we see the terminology? We're weak. We're sinners. We've already established that one in about four chapters in now, right? So we're weak, we're sinners, and we're enemies. That is who you are without Jesus. And so what's he truly saving us from? Again, it's not the fires of hell. He's saving us from the wrath of God. That's probably the only picture we can equate to the wrath of God is a fiery lake and all this stuff. But reality, it's not, it's not those, the consequences. It's the, it's the means of the justifier. It's the one who says, you are without me. Here is my wrath. 
That is the reality of the gospel message. He's not saving us from ourselves. He's not saving us from hell. He's saving us from the wrath that is justly due to all those who are not in Christ Jesus. That is the love of God. It might not sound that way, and that's okay. Because he he adds in all this other information, because he says, at the right time, God worked out the gospel message for you and I. He gave a promise. He fleshed it out in, in human redemptive history. He gave his only begotten son. And then the beautiful reality of John 6 where it says, all whom the Father gives me, I shall not lose. He holds us. He protects us. He keeps us safe. He gives us eternal hope. See, at the right time, Jesus came into history to give us salvation. While we were still sinners, no motivation of my own, no ritual brought us Jesus he wasn't waiting for the correct Tower of Babel to be built for then go, ah, they made the right one. All right, here's my kid. He said, at the right time, Jesus came and died. While we were still sinners, while we deserved the wrath of God, he sent us Jesus. And saved by his life. I love it, man. I wish, if, if you get nothing else from tonight, but know that the gospel is so much more than saving you from hell, I've been success, successful. The gospel is to give you new life here and now with a hope that is built on a truth for the future. That's the beauty of the gospel. It's for the here and now and the not yet. That's the beauty of our gospel. 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So when we read John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, It brings so much more weight. It carries such a different tone. Like Jesus just took one for the team so you don't have to get a weird tan. No, Jesus is the only king who laid down his life so that you could be part of his kingdom. Where in all other empires and all other third world countries and in all other tyrannies, right? In all these communistic places, in all these places where there's just one guy sitting at the top, they create a culture where you have to kill yourself to even try to get in. They're not dying for them, they're the ones setting the standard. What did Jesus do? He looked Pontius Pilate dead in the eyes and he said, For my kingdom's not of this world. And then he took his crown of thorns and he took his garb, beaten, bruised, hung on a cross. 
bled from all of those wounds, and then just to make sure that we got every little last drop pierced his side until it rained water. Because Jesus is the only living king, and he is the only king who laid down his life so that we could find ours. That is the beauty of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. No work that we could do, no rituals, no saints, no hailing Mother Mary, no burning man, which we already saw what's happening over there. Praying they're okay. Maybe don't burn 10,000 foot tall wooden men in Nevada or Arizona, wherever it is. None of those things will get you entrance. But the blood of the king himself. See, why is it so important that we understand that it is by grace through faith alone? Why is it so important that we understand how to properly suffer? Why do we have to understand that suffering counts in light of the blood of Jesus? Why do we have to understand these things? Because the gospel of Jesus is not just a fire insurance card. It's not just a get-out-of-hell-free card in Monopoly. It's not just this unlimited grace card to now just go sin as much as you want so that my grace can be glorified. The gospel is restoring you to a right relationship with the creator. The gospel is restoring you to peace with God so that you can have peace from God. The gospel is giving you purpose to the one thing you can never figure out the answer to, which is suffering. And the gospel is shining light on just how much God loves you and in him real life is found. I I tried to think, I was sitting there and I was praying through, like what what applicable points can I give you tonight? What can we, you know, run through on the pieces of paper that turn into airplanes? But I genuinely, I I couldn't. And I truly believe that, that Christ was just wanting to lay out this fact. His gospel is so much more and a get-out-of-hell card. His grace is so much more than helping you feel better about the stupid, sinful mistake you made last night. His grace is so much more than letting you walk around like a wounded bird playing the martyr. God poured his love out on the cross And then tells us right here that he is pouring his love into the hearts of those who are his. That's the already and the not yet. The gospel of Jesus Christ changes everything. Why do we have to try to make it about us? Let the gospel be about Jesus. Amen? All right, well, we're going to dive into small groups here in a moment, but I want to pray. So let's bow our heads, bow our hearts. And sincerely, and I, and I love that you guys do take the opportunity to do it, but I, that's why I sit up here is so that while you're doing small groups, while you're discussing the questions, while you're running through and building each other up, I want to sit here in case you want to have that gospel conversation or in, or in case you have a question about what was just taught, that we could flesh it out together and walk through it and give it clarity. That's why... I sit up here and do that. That's why we do have leaders in here as well. 
But let's pray and let's go into these small groups. Father, thank you for tonight. God, thank you for the blood of Christ. Thank you that it is strictly Jesus who paid it all. Not the work done before through any of the prophets, the kings, the judges, not through his own mother. None of those people save. You use them mightily. God, you use pastors and missionaries and, and evangelists and best friends and family members all mightily, but none of them save. You just empower them with the grace to go shine the light of your grace to other people. God, when we truly understand grace, we can't help but want to go share it with others, God. And so I pray for all of us in this room tonight that we can first and foremost block out all the confusion, all the false teachings, all the random weirdness of, of life and religion that's out in our culture and focus on understanding the true message of the Bible, that it is by grace through faith in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, for your glory alone, God, so that when suffering hits, we don't have to have the answers, but we can turn to the one who does. God, we love you. Bless our small group time. Be with us as we hang out after that and be with us as we um, leave here tonight and just finish off our weeks, God. We love you. We thank you. We pray this all in your son's name, Jesus. Amen. All right. You guys can dive into your groups.